Uh, Rick's going to come, and let's, uh, let's bow while he comes. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, just thank you so much uh, for your presence here. Um, Lord, as Rick comes and delivers the word, I just pray that we would have our hearts opened to what it is that you have for us today. And uh, God, that we would just uh, quiet our minds uh, to what, uh, what else is going on around us and outside the doors and back at home and uh, whatever our plans for the day. And God, that we could just uh, really rest and uh, rest in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Awesome. Well, this is where Pastor Bill being gone, to me, is an opportunity. Because <laughs> uh, it gives those of us on the leadership team an opportunity to speak and share our hearts and how God is working in our life and things that he's doing in our minds, too, um, which is very vibrant and active. It's, 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 it's fantastic. What I'm going to be talking about today kind of goes along with the songs that we just sang. I, what was this song? Um, the first one that we sang was, I want, to know, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to see your face. Kind of what's a subject that's been on my heart for some time is, is how do you see God? I've, I've been posed with a lot of questions. I post on Facebook and talk to people and and things and a lot of there's a lot of curiosity about where is God at? How do I know what His will is? I, I expect Him to make Himself tangible for me so that there's evidence of the faith that I have in Him. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about. And then it ends up with your love is deep and your love is wide, and that's exactly where I'm going to wind up because in God is love in First John chapter four. Um, John talks about the reality that. God is love. That is who he is. And ultimately, that's how we need to operate with God is out of love for him and love for his son and love for others and love for ourselves. And if we don't honor or patronize that, then it's probably going to be hard to realize God. So I'm going to start with this question. Can we see God? Can we see him? I'm even going to get a little scientific. Being an engineer, I like to take liberties as getting a little scientific because there's a lot of people out there who want empirical evidence. They want physical, tangible evidence. They want to see miracles. They want to see some form of God in this physical realm or they're just not going to buy it. Okay? There's people like that. There's atheists out there who that's what they stand on because no Christian can give them the evidence that satisfies their expectations. Well, uh, just kind of start out with a story. I've been doing, been doing a lot of traveling the last year, um, and I was up in Michigan about a year ago, and always eat the continental breakfast. I usually defer to the oatmeal, because you're really not sure how the rest of this stuff is prepared. The eggs, bacon, yeah, I don't know. So I ate my breakfast, had some trash. I wasn't familiar with the hotel. I hadn't stayed there a lot, or it had been a long time. So I was looking for the trash can. Well, in my mind, I'm like, I'm expecting this trash receptacle, this round object, standalone, away from the food, that has a lid on it, probably that swings open, a liner in it. You know, that's what I'm picturing. That's what I'm looking for. So I finish, and I start looking for that object so I can throw my trash away. I can't find it. I'm, I'm looking. I, I go into the lobby. I look around the dining area. I can't find it. Finally, I get an attendant. I'm like, where is where's your trash can? She leads me over to a little cabinet that is fashioned just like the rest of the cabinets under the counter where the food is. And it has a sign on there, trash. I'm like, ah, it was right there all along. It was blended in with the food bar, kind of had the same veneer to it and everything. And it's just not what I expected. I, I couldn't find it. Uh, I wasn't looking for something like that. So... I, I didn't see it. Um, I think we have that same, that same type of phenomenon goes on with us in that we're expecting to see God in ways in which he really doesn't reveal or manifest himself. We derive and build these presuppositions in our mind that God is supposed to perform a miracle. He's got to heal people. Uh, he's got to reveal himself to me in a dream. He's got to create some kind of phenomenon that reaches into my physical space 
so that it's evidence to me. Um, I would say, why can't we see God? Number one is that, uh, that presupposition in our mind. I think we expect the wrong things. Our expectations are not aligned with how God presents himself. Like my example with the trash can. Number two, supernatural. God exists in a, an immaterial space that's beyond what our senses are fashioned to perceive or touch with the five senses we have. Now, I would say Lisa has a, an intuition that, it, that extends beyond the physical because I can't get away with anything. She, always, she, she figures me out before I actually do something physical to know. <laughs> so there, there are variations of that. But uh, God exists in the supernatural. But that doesn't mean that the supernatural doesn't exist. That all there is is natural and matter. I contend we, we don't embrace the reality or the truth of that. That this physical infrastructure of matter and atoms and energy, light and things that, of which we exist and persist of, it all rests on a supernatural platform. And I'm going to maybe give some scientific viewpoints of that here in just a few minutes. Number three, a wrong heart. Many times we insist on a miracle out of wrong motives, a wrong state of heart. The Israelites in Rephidim, Rephidim whenever they were coming out of Egypt, they became very indignant with Moses because they had been out there for a while, and if you look in Exodus chapter 17, it's repeated again. In Numbers chapter 20, it tells part of this story where the people were getting thirsty and they didn't have the water that they wanted, that they expected. So they were getting, uh, they were getting irritated. So they challenged Moses. They were testing Moses. They said, Moses, we're not happy. We need some water. Why did you send us out here just to die in the desert? You know, they, they totally ab abandoned and forgot what had all the phenomena that had happened to, to uh, help them escape from Egypt, they, they dismissed that and said, Moses, we're thirsty, come on. Uh, why, why did you send us out here? Moses, he gets irritated, and he goes to God, he's like, God, you know, how can I please these complaining people? So God forms a way for Moses to strike a staff on a rock and deliver water to these people. But in that exercise... If you look in Exodus chapter 17, Moses says something that Jesus actually referred to uh, when he was tested by Satan after he entered his ministry um, in the Gospels. He was sent out into the desert and he was confronted by Satan. And he was uh, confronted to to perform some things, some supernatural things, to prove that he was the Christ, that he could take care of himself. Christ refused because he said, it, it is not, we, we don't test God out of spite, that we get unhappy, we get indignant, God's not meeting our expectations, so we say, God, make it happen. If you don't show me something, <laughs> I'm out. Uh, but you realize, even though you're out, you're still in because you can't get out. <laughs> but in, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered, walk, uh, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will come. Okay. But in Numbers chapter 20, it goes a little farther. Verse 20, verse 1 in this story. It adds a 
a little more information. And it says, So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. This is verse 9. He says, He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. Everybody's happy, right? No. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Give them. That event right there, even though Moses was in good standing with God and he followed God's commandments, he struck the rock out of indignation, out of frustration. He didn't trust God. For, for, he had the wrong state of heart. And when he did that, he was then penalized by not being able to join the nation of Israel to cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan eventually. The wrong state of heart, okay? A lot of times we're, we're indignant. We're trying to test the Lord. We're, we're irritated. We're unhappy. That's not the type of person God expects us, his people, to be and the type of person that God's going to reveal himself in mighty ways too. Mistrust in the scripture. The Bible is a historical record of God revealing himself to mankind in a myriad of ways, including some very outstanding phenomenon and miracles. Yet many don't trust this record, this instrument, this testimony, this historically accurate record of what went on People don't trust it. They don't want to confide in this writing as, an, as a trustworthy authority and source to say, man, if I want to see God, read about what he did in here in the Old Testament. When, when he brought the nation of Israel out through Moses, all the phenomenon, the cloud, the fire, the, the Red Sea, uh, the nation of Israel stood on that event and even celebrated it regularly through, um, through their feasts particularly the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, which was solely to represent this magnificent marvel that God had done for the nation of Israel. Then even Jesus Christ, the, the miracles that he performed just 2,000 plus years ago, which is recorded. There's a lot of data, eyewitness testimony of, of that Jesus Christ not only existed, but he did what, what he said he did, and he was who he said he was. But yet we... We just, that's not enough. It's, it's not right here, right now. It's not within what I can see, so that's not good enough. So those are some reasons, I think, why we can't see God. I'm going to remind you of this. I bring this up about every time that I speak. And I hope I bring it up enough that at least you'll remember the idea or the concept of the administrations, because... I think many people develop wrong expectations of how God interacts with mankind because they don't categorize or organize or understand the scriptures from Genesis, the creation account, to Revelation chapter 21, where the new heaven and new earth, they don't understand that God has changed the way he works with mankind in, over periods of time. The way God reveals himself, the way God interacts with human beings, the way he's postured us to be capable of that has changed over time. I've had some people, I hear people claim, well, um, they had polygamy back in the Old Testament, so it's okay now. No, because God is working with mankind in a grace administration. We're in the grace administration, number six, right now. We're work, he's working with mankind with different expectations, a different spiritual platform than he ever has before. In that day, in prior administrations, man had evolved away from Adam and Eve in, into a nomadic type of lifestyle without direct interface or intervention or communication with God until Abraham. In that stretch of time, mankind took liberty upon themselves to survive in, in the Mideast, the Euphrates and Tigris rivers in Syria, what's now Syria, 
and Jordan and those areas in the Middle East, they took the liberty to survive. And, and that was taking the form of more of a nomadic type of lifestyle, a nomadic type of culture. In that culture, you had a patriarch like Abraham, and he had several wives, and, and it evolved, okay? Was God happy, happy with that? No, it was a consequence of the sin and the curse of the earth that placed man in that disposition to survive for himself. But God has continued to work with and massage and fashion, refashion mankind, humankind, toward being Christ, like Christ, toward that ultimately, number eight, the paradise on new earth, where this earth will be destroyed, a new heaven and a new earth will be created, and we will be allowed to, re to exist, recreated in a new spiritual form, not dependent on blood like we are right now. So, in the administration of Jesus Christ, that is the period where Jesus Christ was born, was here physically in the flesh, he had his ministry, people could talk to him, touch to him, he represented humanity, he was... He had the fullness of the deity, fullness of, of God, but he was in the flesh here on this earth. What a unique and marvelous opportunity to see God face to face. But even then, even to his closest disciples, that wasn't enough. You know, we look back at that today, it's like, gee whiz, if, if Jesus was standing right here, I'd believe. And, you know, there was people back there who didn't. So I want to step back just a second. Okay, so the eight administrations, I'm not going to get into it now, but would love to have a study to help people organize the scripture by the eight administrations. Five of them have executed already. We're in the sixth. There's two more to come. And that even lines with the Jewish festivals, uh, the, the feast of uh, Passover, the unleavened bread, uh, first fruits, it all aligns in this, with this outline. Oh, maybe we'll get a chance to get into it someday. Okay, the other thing to consider is for us to be cognizant of or comprehend or consider the three-part reality that we exist in. There is a physical portion or dynamic or aspect to our existence, physical. We, we were made, we were formed from the dust of the ground, right? Uh, when I die, if I weren't put in a casket and pumped with preservatives, I'd probably... <laughs> probably melt right back into the earth and turn right back into the dust from which I came, okay? I'm not going to leave some kind of foreign residue on the ground because I'm made of something that the earth is not and leave something behind. Some people say if I ever got hit by a car on the highway, I'd leave a big grease spot, but that's, I'm not going to try it just to find out. <laughs> um, so we, have, we, we, are, we exist with, with, with physical uh, attributes, you know, our heart, our brain, there's chemical processes that are happening and firing in our brain, our heart, circulatory systems, respiratory systems, tissue that's functioning uh, to make us the being that we are. But there's also a perceived reality. We're not able, no human being is able to perceive everything that's there, right? There, there's aspects of the universe that scientists are just now beginning to to touch and, and find with telescopes, and they're creating instruments to see farther and deeper, not only into space, but even into quantum theory. They're finding particles and things well beyond the protons and the electrons and the, the neutrons that were originally thought to be the fundamental building blocks of the atom and that there is nothing lower. Everything is made out of atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, and that's it. They're finding now, they're, getting, they're digging in there deeper, and they're finding particles and stuff. They... They, that are behaving in ways they can't even predict. I've read where they take these accelerators and they accelerate these particles in an, in an attempt to try to divide them and manipulate them. And they're even finding that their attempts to use the accelerators and apply these forces to control and understand their patterns doesn't work because these subatomic sub particles kind of have a mind of their own. So perceived reality, there's a lot out there that exists that we don't see, that doesn't enter into our brain as information. That we're, so, so we have to take what's presented to us in information or observation, and we have to assemble it into some kind of a conclusion. Here's what reality is. Here's how I fit into it. Here's what's right and wrong. Here's what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not. Okay? We have to shape that for ourselves, and it's different for everybody.
but it doesn't necessarily represent everything that's physical here. Nor does it represent the third dimension, which is spiritual. Again, I mentioned earlier that there is a supernatural foundation on which the physical rests or exists. The supernatural paradigm or the supernatural arena, not only is the physical rested upon it, but the supernatural works through, through that physical as well. There's a spiritual dimension that a lot of people are fascinated with, they're interested in. There's folks who want to talk to their past grandmother, or they want to, you know, they see on TV, they go on these ghost hunts. They go to these spooky places with the lights and the special equipment, and they're dying to, to find a ghost or some kind of a spiritual phenomenon. And what's funny about those is you always see them lurking around. They always take a, a girl with them so that they can get some screaming and things. There's always a lady with them, and they're sneaking around. It's dark. Hey, are you out there? I'm, I'm talking. Is anybody? Oh, oh, hey, what was that? Oh, it was a flicker of light. Oh, there's evidence. Now, she's probably part of your perceived reality, not even something that happened. <laughs> I don't know. I get a kick out of those things. But, but there is a spiritual reality out there. We, we are, we're very curious to tap into it. We're, we're trying to find it, and many times in a lot of the wrong places, Okay. So, how does God reveal himself? Wait a minute. Does he reveal himself in seances and forces on the Ouija board little handle or in the instruments from Ghostbusters that's out there looking for ghosts and things like that? Number one, and I, just, I talked about it just a minute ago, is the person of Jesus Christ is the most profound, direct, in-your-face, I-am-God manifestation of flesh on this earth that ever has been, okay? He's been here. He's revealed himself. Um, but back then, people struggled with that, and, they, and we do now. Both in the administration of Jesus when Jesus was here in the flesh, and now in the administration of grace, which happened when Jesus died, he was resurrected, sent the Holy Spirit. Now we exist in a new spiritual arrangement where Christ himself, through Holy Spirit, is in you. And we exist with the power, the capability to, to, to connect with the deeper things of God through that Holy Spirit, through that Christ in you. But, man, we just don't see it. For example, if you go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 5. So this is the story of Doubting Thomas. It's always a, a famous one of, the, of, of this type of topic, right? So Thomas, in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, okay, so, so the situation is this. The Lord has been, um, is, is preparing, God, uh, Christ is preparing for the resurrection. He's not been resurrected yet. He's, he's on the approach towards being crucified. And he's meeting with his disciples and he's trying to comfort them because his disciples are starting to freak out. They're like, Christ, man, Jesus, you're telling us you're going to leave, but we're, we're expecting you to be that Savior that comes and takes down the Roman Empire and frees us from this oppression, from, from this theocracy, of, of this Jewish oppression. How come you're not going to do that? Their expectations were wrong. They weren't seeing Jesus for who he really was. So here he is. They're troubled because Jesus says, I'm going to leave. These guys are freaking out because it's not what they're expecting. So Jesus is, is uh, in verse 14... Chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Okay? So he gets to verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. 
So there we are. Come on. Come on, Jesus. You're not enough, dude. We want to see the Father. Prove it to us. You're leaving us. You're leaving us high and dry. What are we going to do? Show us the Father. Christ says, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Come on, guys. I've shown you all this good stuff. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. My point, the point, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in there. We could study for weeks just that. But my point is Christ is, is saying, he's told this to the Pharisees, the Sadducees who said, give us signs and things too. He's like, guys, I'm not going to show you any signs. You're, you're coming to me trying to test me and to call me out in front of the public to try to belittle me. And I, I'm not going to show you any signs. And his disciples, it's like, guys, I have shown you, I've, I've, I've revealed myself to you. So the person of Jesus Christ, if that's not enough for you, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ physically died, his blood rushed out of his body, his heart stopped beating, he was buried for three days in, trapped in cloth, and three days later rose again, that is an extremely profound phenomenon. But to some who weren't there and to some who don't trust this testimony and this authority, they say, well, it's not enough. I still don't buy it. Well, what about creation? Romans 1, 18 through, and through 20. I mean, it's all over in the scriptures. This is just a couple that stuck out. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Can we not look at this creation, how chaos is somehow organized and kept organized and constrained from falling apart, which is the, the natural law of, of, of entropy, you know, was it the second law of physics, um, that everything is seeking uh, a final resting place. It's seeking total disorder. It's seeking a place of least amount of energy. So if I have a ball up here and I let it go, it's going to go down and it's going to keep rolling until it gets to a spot where there's no more gravity pulling on it and, it's, and then it's going to stop. Why, to, in my opinion, and what I observe as a human being, why is it that human beings, it, it takes so much energy to keep us organized, to keep cells together, to keep these cells associating with one another through the variety of systems in our body? That that energy that's in the, in the atom, right, that they made the atomic bomb out of and released and blew away a couple cities in Japan, there's enough power to do that in an atom. How is that energy contained in there. I think Einstein started kind of stroking the surface of, of this idea of energy and mass and its relationship with respect to the speed of light and things. Because it's still, Einstein's theories are still very well respected and used as a, uh, as a fundamental idea today in science. Psalm 19, and uh, this is one of my favorite ones. I mean, it just describes in a magnificent way, a way to perceive God's creation. 
I'll just read a little bit of it just, just to get started. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And it goes on to describe these things in poetic form. I mean, someone, a pessimist or an atheist, is going to look at that and say, oh, that's just a nice poem. Somebody's just dreaming that stuff up. Okay. Um, but I see it as a trusted author, one of the trusted authors of this testimony, of this authority that describes who God really is. So you've got the person of Jesus Christ, you've got the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've got the creation itself, and then Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'm going to get into Holy Spirit a little bit. I, I tend to be kind of fascinated with Holy Spirit because I read a lot about it, and I've got a great book from my grandfather called The Eternal Spirit, and I, I kind of quote that often um, because this book really gets into some of the science behind Holy Spirit. So the author in, in, uh, in this book, The Eternal Spirit, this is actually a, uh, a, a, a seminary textbook. It's not for the faint of heart to read. It doesn't have any pictures or anything. <laughs> Letters are pretty small. But, uh, but one of the approaches that the author takes is, you know, okay, so if we want to understand spirit, what if we understand what's not spirit first? What's matter, okay? I spoke a little bit about that word matter. Uh, matter is considered to be anything that occupies space or affects one or more of our senses. Okay? That is something, that's matter. It has mass. It has a presence that we can perceive. Spirit then, in contrast to that, must be something that transcends space altogether. It must be something that transcends the physical senses. So, for example, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The scripture talks about this idea. Okay, so I'm going to start at verse 16. And this is Paul talking to the Corinthian people uh, in chapter 4, um, kind of about how the, the, the physical life operates. And, and he comes to verse 16. He says, Therefore, based on what he was talking about proceeding, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Okay, so he's hinting to this idea of matter, which is seen. It occupies space. It's something that triggers our senses. And he's saying that is temporal. And that goes along with the eight administrations. We're in the grace administrations now, administration now with the Holy Spirit. Then you're going to have the appearing uh, administration when Jesus Christ appears to gather his own. And then there's a, a period of history where the world will be subject to God's judgment and wrath in some tremendous ways. And then the last administration is the paradise on earth. That's in Revelation chapter 1, 21, 22. At that point, after Satan has been destroyed, God and Jesus Christ are going to take control of this earth and reshape it into something new that is eternal. We will be reformed into something that's eternal. But right now, we exist in, not in administration 8 yet, we're in administration 6. We still have a physical matter to contend with. We're made out of physical matter, which it gets pummeled, pummeled by all of the forces at play here in this, in this physical life. So there's, so there's matter, uh, which is the physical reality, and then there's spirit, which is eternal, the spiritual reality. We fit in the spirit, we kind of fit in the between there, and, and what, what we perceive of all of this is kind of where we find ourselves in creating the reality for each one of us. Scientists have struggled for years trying to describe the building blocks of matter as subatomic characteristics 
are being observed that more and more take the form of energy instead of waves or particles. Energy with some sort of spatial magnitude, which, which starts blending the idea of light with matter. Up, up until a certain point in time, scientists were unwilling to consider that matter persisted of anything that was not observable or empirical, empirical or measurable, that it didn't have some type of mass. Now, they're starting to evolve into seeing, as they look deeper in the quanta, they're starting to see that these particles are actually um, formed, it's formed groups of en uh, energy that has some spatial magnitude. As it's better understood, the constitution of matter is receding into the immaterial, energy and light. Relationships between energy and mass continues maturing since Einstein's theory of relativity. So we see even sci the scientific community, which is so rigid to dismiss anything that cannot be empirically measured and uh, observed, actually receding into theories to say, oh, wait a minute, okay, we're not dealing with particles. This stuff performs more like waves or light, kind of like what Einstein was talking about, but now it's even d behaving more as just energy, which the scriptures a lot of times describes God as, this energy, this, this, this for, I don't want to call it first, God is a person, okay? It's very hard to explain in, <laughs> in human terms and vernacular, how God himself exists in the supernatural, invisible to our senses, but yet organized with some kind of a mind and some kind of a structure to, to not only have a mind, but also impart his influence on this world. It's, it's phenomenal. So I want to read from you a little bit from uh, this book. This book, The Eternal Spirit, is um, it's, it's a good, it's a nice mix of science and uh, uh, Orthodox Christianity, and, and I like the way that the author puts this. He says, let's see, where do I want to start? Again, one of the most amazing facts about these discoveries of modern physics is that they were arrived at by the human mind and not by the human eye or any other physical sense organ by the way of mathematical formulae. Many years before, they were actually confirmed experimentally. To any thinking person, this mathematical accuracy points unmistakably to the universal intelligence and will to whom men in all ages have reverently given the name God, that will which is the constitution of the cosmos. The cosmos in the scriptures referred to, a lot of times translated as the world, okay? Moreover, with each succeeding discovery of modern physics, our world of the physical senses has lost more and more of its traditional character as the real world and has become correspondingly a world of appearance, the phenomenal world. The real world has come to be more and more, in fact, that region above the heaven described by Plato as the colorless, formless, and intangible, truly existing essence with which all true knowledge is concerned which is visible only to the mind, the pilot of the soul. In short, it is the world of the eternal spirit, from whose very being, perhaps the phenomenal world, has been projected and has taken shape before the eyes of created living beings. So more and more, even science is, is receding into this idea. Uh, they, they don't want to call it God. Man, they stay away from that. Uh, they don't, they're very unwilling to agree with in, in intelligence de, by design, intelligent design, but many of them are starting to step over that fence because they have to follow where the evidence goes. Okay, so the person of Christ, the resurrection, creation, Holy Spirit, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. Actually, let me back up just one second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it describes nine manifestations of the Spirit. Uh, again, this is a whole study of its own. It starts out in the, new, in the NIV talking about uh, spiritual gifts. I'm not a scholar, I'm not a Greek student, but in reading and studying some of those who have, they suggest... In the Greek, 
It says in 12 verse 1, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. In the Greek, to many, the word spiritual gifts, the gifts is not in the Greek. There's no Greek word that represents gifts. Rather, now about spiritual, it's pneumatikios, pneumatikos, things that proceed or added from the spirit, spiritual matters, okay? So I'm not going to try to pretend to be a scholar, although I am going to suggest that when we look at the Greek underneath the, the, the English, it might help us understand that what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, it, it may be a little different than gifts spoken of in other parts of the, the, the Scripture. The other thing is, verse, chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Manifestation means bringing Holy Spirit into this phenomenal world, into this world that can be perceived by the senses. Um, God manifests himself in a lot of different ways. I mean, we've been talking about some of them so far. Um, these manifestations are the way Holy Spirit operates within us when we have that Holy Spirit within. Those nine, I'll just mention them. It's in verse 7 to 11. Um, to one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge or a word of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith. The, the, uh, another is a person, an individual in the church. And these things, God manifests himself through these individuals for the common good. Not to make somebody famous or to make money off of freaking people out with cool manifestations, okay? This is to serve God's purpose in his church. So a word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and interpretation. Of tongues. You've seen the scripture talk about each of these types of manifestations over the years from Old Testament to New. Um, we experience these manifestations in different forms for those of us who are sensitive to and discern those types of manifestations. They're there. Well, I don't see them. Uh, you know, uh, when you go to watch TV of the miracle healings, I don't buy it, man. It's a uh, it's all set up. Well, probably some or a lot of it is. Maybe some of it isn't. I don't know. How about um, if I tell you the story about a couple of years ago, um, I have a heart arrhythmia, and years ago it was not in as good a control as it is now. And I woke up one evening, felt really bad, thought I was going to pass out, not feeling right, went to the ER here in Highland, they, they listen to my ticker, do an EKG, and they're like, it's <laughs> all over the place. And uh, they do an enzyme test. I guess when they do a blood test, you, you typically do a blood test to target a certain thing, right? You don't do a blood test to check everything. In my case, they did a blood test to check for some enzyme that is present for someone who's having a heart attack or a heart problem. Doctor comes, I'm laying there in the gurney. The, this blood pressure cuff keeps pressure, pressurizing for every couple minutes. And it, you can hear the, the Velcro. I'm like, shut this thing off, man. <laughs> so I'm conscious. I'm, it's not like I'm unconscious or anything. But. So the doctor comes in after doing this test and, and reads these enzymes. She goes, Mr. Scoggins, you know, this enzyme is extremely high. It really suggests that you've encountered some kind of heart damage or a heart attack or something. Like things got pretty surreal at that time, right? I mean, you kind of have to take a step back and say, "Man, is this real?" Um, and it's kind of like being on a roller coaster. You know, it's like I love roller coasters, but once you get in there and that baby takes off, you're stuck in that seat till the ride's over. You know what I'm saying? There's nowhere to go. Well, I was in that gurney. That heart was doing whatever it was doing. I couldn't control it. I couldn't say, oh, hey, straighten out. It was doing its thing. All I could do was ride. And at that point, 
some serious discussions with Father were taking place. It's like, you know, I, Father, wherever this goes, I'm trusting you to keep me comfortable and I'll wind up in your lap one way or another, you know. Well, they, they uh, bundled me all up, ambulance ride to St. Luke's Hospital, you know, all the, they took this really cool instrument, and kept me plugged in, had one person ride with the ambulance all the way there. They didn't run the sirens though, but they were going fast. Got me there and uh, got settled in. So St. Luke started running their tests, right? Gave me some potassium, some other things, kind of calmed down. Cardiologist comes in a little later and he says, Rick, you know, those enzymes that they said was really high in Highland, they're normal. Yeah, we don't see you. Those enzymes aren't high. And he says, those, that, that enzyme, the behavior of that enzyme will not change in the matter of an hour. Okay? If that enzyme is high, it takes time. There's no way that from, the time, from an ambulance ride to Highland to St. Luke's that that enzyme changed by that much. Okay? Now, some of you listening out there, you're going to say, ah, yeah, it was coincidence. They, they did the enzyme test wrong in Highland. And that, well, maybe they did. I don't know. Did God intervene in some way in there? You know? That's just one, one story. Is that enough evidence? No, no, Rick, we don't buy it. God's not real. Um, our expectations for God revealing himself to us must align with who he is, spirit, with his desires for his glory, not for our comfort not to meet our expectations or our desires. I, and I think a lot of people become disappointed when they pray to God for something to happen, especially someone they love who is sick or terminal or something like that. We pray that God will heal them, and it doesn't happen, and they're disappointed. God's not there. Where is he? I'm disappointed. I'm mad. God, show me. Show me that you're there. Come on, I, I don't believe it anymore. We've got to align with God, see this world through God's eyes. God is up to something much bigger than my pursuit of a career or my pursuit of obtaining Harley-Davidson motorcycles, which I've dreamed about, or me becoming a great keyboard player or an engineering career or whatever. Those are, those are great assets that God could use me in as his instrument, right? But his ultimate purpose is to reconcile mankind to himself through the person of Jesus Christ, which ultimately is me. Ultimately. And sometimes that may mean my suffering. Does that unfair? Does that mean God's not there? No, that's who God is. We have to align our expectations with who God is and how he is operating with mankind to achieve his purposes, his glory. For example, if you go to John chapter 9, in this section, there is a blind man. Jesus heals a man born blind. So in verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, something went wrong. This person who was born blind, who didn't have the, the physical ability to see through his eyes like everybody else, it went wrong. What went wrong? Did, did he sin? Did his parents sin? How did he get cursed with this? Christ says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What is he saying? This didn't happen by accident. It, it, it happened by God's sovereignty so that God can use that blind man in some specific way to bring glory to himself, to, to achieve his ultimate end of reconciling mankind back to himself so that we wind up in administration 8 on a new heaven and new earth someday right there together with God and Christ themselves, refashioned. God is trying to, trying to work 
in and through all of us to make that happen for everyone. But unfortunately, there's a human will component and um, a perceived reality that we all must contend with. Okay, so also uh, the church. So he speaks through Jesus Christ, Christ's resurrection, the creation, Holy Spirit, and all the ways that we talked about, including the nine manifestations uh, in chapter 12. And then through the church, his people. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to cut this short. This is a whole study in and of itself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He, he who that has been saved is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We then enter into the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors of Christ. That is the role we are to assume as human beings in God's economy. Okay, all uh, Having our recreation and all the material things and our career and all of our hobbies and having fun here at church, and all, it's, it's all fringe benefits, all good stuff. But ultimately, we are here to operate and serve Him for His glory and to reach, to, to, to contribute with Him to His ultimate ends. And that doesn't always work out to our comfort or our leisure or our luxury. Doesn't mean anything's wrong. Doesn't mean God's not there. We have to align ourselves with Him. We have to respect His sovereignty for who He is, how He's operating with us in this administration the Grace Administration, which is fantastic because he's given us lots of promises. And I'm going to get to those in a second. The seventh one is prayer. Christ said himself in John chapter 14, we just read it, that when Christ goes to the Father and sits at his right hand, anything you ask in his name, he will do. Now, oh, that's not true. <laughs> I've asked a lot of things in Christ's name and it didn't happen. Well... Does it align with God's ultimate end of, of, of glorifying Him, bringing mankind to Him? Maybe not. Maybe what I wanted doesn't align with that. So he, he's not, he's not uh, allowing that. There, besides prayer, of all those things we talked up there... Um, the last one is what I, what I just called tangibles, the promises that God made through his message to the prophets, through, Mo, through Abraham, through Isaac, Jacob, through Moses, all the way up through Christ, okay? He has established a covenant with mankind in which he is committed to, to delivering certain promises, just like he did the nation of Israel. He promised them that he would... Uh, bring them out of Egypt. He promised them that they would go into the promised land, the land of milk and honey. That, that kind of thing happened. We are on that course. In the eight administrations, we're in the sixth one. We're on that course of God delivering on his promises. And, and some of those promises are tangible ones. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, faith. The fact that someone has faith, that, again, it, I, I think it's a misunderstanding of what faith is and how faith works. That someone can look at an individual or they themselves have a faith that is and a conviction that is so solid and founded on the truth of God that no presupposition of man can contend with it. Just like Abraham in Romans chapter 9. Abraham had a faith. He was willing to kill Isaac, his son. But he, he was going to follow through with it because he knew God could raise him. He, he had trust in him. Even though it didn't make sense physically, he's like, man, I, I, God, I know you're right. But, but we could look at ourselves or someone else who has that type of faith and say, oh, that person developed that themselves by their will. They made, oh, look at what they did. They studied art. They went to Bible study and they heard, listened to this sermon. They prayed a lot. And boy, look at the faith they developed. Faith doesn't come from us. Faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That is an evidence right there of anyone who has genuine, true faith. That did not come from you. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And this was an old one verse here that we used to remember. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The good works is to align with God in the execution of his plan to reach his ultimate end through the administrations, and faith is a component of that. That's a promise God gave us. I'm going to give you faith. I'm going to give you that conviction, that that sense of of my reality that you can confide in and sink your teeth in and live on, even in the tough times. What about knowledge? How many many folks are out there, you know, that... uh, claim that they have a lot of scholarly, scriptural knowledge and can repeat verses and maybe tout that or present themselves as maybe more elite because where did that knowledge come from? Well, actually, memorizing verses can, can be just done by the human will, by just a talent of memorizing, which I don't, I don't have. But just understanding God's word, applying it, knowledge and wisdom, where does that come from? In Proverbs chapter 2, it talks about that wisdom comes after you seek God like treasure. The first thing you're going to find is the fear of God, the reverence, the fear of God. And then once you have that, now, you, now you're moldable. He can work with you, and then he's going to impart wisdom and knowledge. You're going to begin to understand. You're going to be able to see him because now you're approaching him in the right way. So someone who's smart in theological things... Is that something, again, that a person can just study and make themselves smart on theological things? A lot of people do that and present themselves like that, but you can tell if it's genuine or not, usually. What about being drawn toward Christ? John chapter 6, verse 43. That is not an accident, and that is not something you're going to develop on your own. God has to do that. If you're being drawn towards Jesus Christ, the idea of him as a person, the idea of him as the Christ, the idea of him being resurrected, the idea of him, Christ, in you, the mystery right now, and and seeking to be like him, not just follow, seeking to be like him, like the rabbi, if you have that type of a motivation, that does not come naturally. The natural man is hostile to God. We're all born that way. John chapter 6, 43. Christ is speaking to an audience. And he says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. You got to listen. We got to listen with, with the right frame of mind. What about without Christ, we can do nothing, doing anything. Everything that, can we as human beings stand here and claim to be in control of and to, to have some influence in the fact that this world exists, that there's 20% oxygen in the air and that the sun is balanced 93 million miles away from the earth and doesn't burn it up, but doesn't, it's not too cold and that we have water and life exists here and the symmetry and the cells. Uh, is any of us responsible for that? Heck no. Do any of us control it? No. Science and doctors do an excellent job of observing and discovering what's there and manipulating it, right? Even to the point of cloning, which is kind of a scary type of uh, scientific phenomena. But they can't create blood. Why do you have blood donors? They can't fabricate blood. That is a, a created, unique constituent that only God can manufacture through his human race. What about, and so John chapter 15, how can we do anything or even claim that we can do? John chapter 15, verse 1, Christ says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it will be more, even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, in him he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. I got into, an, and I'm about out of time, but I got into an interesting debate with a spiritualist at the airport a couple trips ago. He had this, it was at the airport, big counter, books all over the place. Of course, it dropped my, caught my interest, so I'm like, hmm, what is this? And it was this Eastern, uh, East Hindu, Hinduism, Vedic religion stuff, the new spirituality. So I, we had a great discussion. So I started, I, first I asked him, I said, what, what is this? He started explaining to me that, uh, that, that we are all lost, we're all empty, we have, we each a, and every individual person uh, has the divine already inside. You just have to buy these books and follow the formula and you can discover how to unveil the divinity that's in you and now you'll find peace and happiness and this kind of stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. I said, well, how's Jesus Christ fit into that? What about Jesus Christ? When I said Jesus Christ, I could see his face turn, and he, he's like, well, Jesus Christ had his own. But I said, but I said what about uh, John 3.16? No, nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Well, you don't understand. You don't inter I said, I know exactly what it says. I, I you, don't, you don't know how to interpret. He's, it's like, then, then it just it ended there because he, he derailed and just kept saying, Do you, are you in control of, of what God does? Can you control what God does? I'm like... He stopped reasoning with me at all at that point, you know? I don't know, I, th I thought it was pretty interesting. So, in summary, can I, do I, do I have the capability to show a screen? It's all gone? Okay. Bottom line, and then we've got to go. Bottom line, love God, love others as you love yourself. The, the two greatest commandments, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love others as yourself. That's where you got to start. It's based on love. God is love, 1 John chapter 4. If we don't love him, if we're operating out of some other motive to be religious or to satisfy my curiosity of the spiritual or to condemn or antagonize God because he's made me mad, he didn't heal this person I wanted, and I'm going to test him, if you're going to approach God that way, he will, you will not see him. He's going to be that trash can underneath the food bar over there in the veneer of the woodwork, and you're, going to, you're not going to see him. You're going to be wandering around the kitchen with this garbage. You don't know what to do with it, and you're going to be sour. You're going to be mad and bitter. You're not going to have the quality of life that God affords. Second thing, seek God like treasure, and you will find first a healthy fear of God. And I'm getting this from Proverbs chapter 2, the very beginning. You will find first a healthy fear of God, and then he will reveal himself to you in marvelous, exciting, intangible ways. He will protect, he will guide, he will provide knowledge and wisdom. Things will start making sense. You'll start seeing him work within the fabric of, of this creation. You'll, see, you'll get the confidence of the, in the person of Jesus Christ, and you'll realize the Christ in you. You will appreciate the resurrection. You'll start appreciating the word. It'll start making sense. The eight administrations will come out of that, and the, and the Jewish feasts will line up, and you'll see the whole outline of God's ultimate ends. And it's like, wow, I'm a part of that. That's not something for me to take advantage of and oppress people with and, and mind re theologically wrestle them to the ground. No, God's in control of all that. I just join in with his work. So I encourage you, it's not that complicated. I talked about some complicated types of things, matter and, 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 and energy and light and those types of things, but it comes down to loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving others as yourself, the two greatest commandments, and then seeking God like treasure so that you appreciate and revere him for who he is, and then, then he will abide with you. Right. If I could offer a prayer, and then I'll invite the the team back, the worship team back up, right? God, our Father, uh, first of all, may we close our eyes and just recognize you 
as the God creator of all things. That you have given us this day, you have given us light, not only physical light, but you've given us light from within that inspires, that enriches, that compels us towards you. It compels us towards benevolence to others. It compels grace. Um, thank you for, for even thinking about allowing us to participate in that with you. May we acknowledge you for who you are. May we also acknowledge Jesus Christ for who he is, your son, the resurrected Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. And that we have confidence in that because of, of the written word and the testimony and that as and that an authority. But also the authority of your creation. The authority of the Holy Spirit that resides in us and manifests itself in multiple ways. And all the other magnificent ways you reveal yourself in and through us. May we respect that. May we revere you, respect you in that. And may we not try to use spirituality or, or this curiosity of the spiritual as, as an end unto itself uh, uh, to be entertained with. May we respect it and, the, and, 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 and enter into that space aligned with your viewpoint, with seeing the world through your eyes, and that we will contribute to your glory, contribute to um, achieving your plan with mankind in a positive way, in a way that is pleasing to you. I ask that uh, those who heard will hear, um, that those who listened, it will penetrate, and that the, that the truths that were conveyed here today through your word, that they'll stick and will advance into loving you more. And we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.